Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Women of the Fur Trade by Frances Konkin. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill. You are a listener of Esteem and Prestige. We are a podcast of, well, let's just say you could do worse. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, and I'm the branch head of the Louis Riel Library, which seems extra appropriate this month. And just like Cecilia, one of the characters in the play, I too thoroughly enjoyed the Cats movie. And across <laughs> the table from me is... Uh, I'm Toby, I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I'm really glad to finally be making some use out of my theater degree. Um, and across the table from me is our very special guest. What? Hi, I'm Colette. I work at the Reader Services Desk here at the Millennium Library. And like Eugenia, I live on Eugenie Street. without you. We'd love to hear from you. You could write us a letter using quill and paper, then throw the envelope up in the air and have it magically delivered to us, or you could use that newfangled internet thingy. You can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But first, we're going to check in with the panel, and particularly with our special guest, Colette. So, Colette, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Colette, and um, Jennifer Lopez danced on my living room floor. Are you serious? Tell us more. What? What yes, it's well, true. It's a strong opening. <laughs> it is a strong opening. <laughs> Um, we have a very good friend who works in the movie industry, and he was uh, one of the set designers for Shall We Dance, which is the movie Jennifer Lopez filmed here in Winnipeg, and uh, they put in brand new hardwood floors for the rehearsal space in a building in Old Market Square. And when the movie was done, he was told to just get rid of all this hardwood flooring, which he refused to do. He stored it all in his backyard and sold it to us, and so we put it in our living room, and that's how Jennifer Lopez danced on my floor. Oh, that's kind of that's cool. Excellent. I assume... Little known facts. I assume that your family has danced on that floor as well, just to complete yes. the... Yeah. Yes. Awesome. I you, can top that. You don't have to top okay, it. You were, you were looking at me like, do you have anything to add? And no, no, I have nothing to add. Uh, anything from you, Trevor? Oh, I mean, the only thing I was thinking of, it was that uh, one of the nice things about having Colette on the podcast is now there's parody in the people that like you two versus the people that don't like you two. Oh, no. Uh, and just over the weekend, I don't know, Colette, if you see this, I got an email, I only saw it this morning, that you two apparently will be on tour, but not really on tour. They're going to be at this new uh, stage in Las Vegas oh, wow. called The Sphere. Oh. 
wow. and uh, dates and uh, ticket information is forthcoming. Okay, and so we're going. Well, you know, the first thing I said, there's no way I'm going to go. And then the second thought was, Colette will go. I could do this. <laughs> yeah, so it's still kind of early days in my head, but I'm like, you can fly to Vegas. Sounds like they'll be there for a while. Yeah. We've got time. Like, yeah, you know. you know. The one downside is apparently Larry Mullen Jr. It won't be with them. What? Because he's got uh, a recovering sure. from uh, undisclosed surgery. So they're going to have some some nobody. Some other drummer? Yeah, some rando drumming. Mm. So if you if you go for Larry Mullen, then it's... Yeah, I kind of have a girl crush on him, but what can I say? At least Bono will be there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. So that's all I'm going to say. I know where I won't be. These these two jokers here, they don't let me talk about you two. So I thought this is just... uh, Just make this the podcast, Trevor. Uh, (laughs) Hey, Bono wrote a book just before Christmas. (laughs) Lyrics are poetry. (laughs) I won't argue with that. And if this is a book podcast, why the heck are we reading a play? Oh, Because the play is in a book. It's Mm. in book form. Because we didn't go see the play. What is a book? We read the book. What is a book? Yes. There's that children's book, isn't there? What is a book? With the, uh, oh, no. That's not what it's called, is it? Uh, can't think of it now. Yeah. should have made a reference or something. Before well, we go too deep into that, <laughs> yeah. this is probably where we should have Toby tell us a little bit about the author first. Okay. Let's, let's do that. Um, Frances Konkan. She is a Anishinaabe, Sloven writer, playwright, journalist, and theater director. Uh, originally from Cowiching First Nation in Treaty 3 territory, she currently lives and works in Treaty 1 territory here in Winnipeg. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Manitoba and an MFA in playwriting from the City University of New York's Brooklyn College. She likes to say that her theater career began in 2007 when she saw the Three Penny Opera starring Alan Cumming and he accidentally touched her shoulder, which, I mean, that would change me too. Um, She wrote her first play while working at the box office of the Royal Manitoba Theater Center. About this, she says, it was a slow Saturday, and the only games we had on the computers was Minesweeper, which I found way too stressful to play. Sometimes my coworkers would join in and read them. It made me laugh when they laughed, and I like to laugh, so I kept writing. The plays she's written include Women of the Fur Trade, Zajiduin, Love, Flesh-Colored Crayons, Little Red, Jupiter, and How to Talk to Human Beings. Her play The Dance-Off of Conscious Uncoupling received the Tom Henry Award for Best New Comedy in 2015. She was the winner of the Best New Manitoba Play at the Winnipeg Fringe Festival in 2016. She won the Manitoba Association of Playwrights Emerging Artist Award in 2017. In 2018, she won the Best New Play at the Toronto Fringe Festival. Um, she's also won the Reveal Indigenous Arts Award and the Winnipeg Arts Council RBC on the Rise Award. In 2021, she was named a directing fellow for This Gen Fellowship from Why Not Theatre. Uh, she's also written for TV and film, been an arts reporter for the Winnipeg Free Press, the artistic director of Sarasvati Productions, and is currently the writer-in-residence here at Winnipeg Public Library. Uh, she is a Taurus with Leo Ascending <laughs> and a Virgo Moon, an INFP and an Enneagram Type 4. She likes watching and participating in sports, playing video games, practicing the MCAT, just in case, and adding luxury goods to her online shopping cart with no intention of ever checking out. Uh, she has a dog named Tucker, a cat named Tucker, and many houseplants that are not named Tucker. And it's a really amazing year for her. Um, her play, The Crows, is currently being performed by Gwadank Theatre in Yukon. Her new play, Space Girl, opens at Prairie Theatre Exchange next month. Uh, tickets are still available for that. And uh, Women of the Fur Trade is being put on at the Stratford Festival this summer. 
Mm. Yeah. Exciting. Very exciting. And Road she's trip. Being, and she's being discussed on the Time to Read podcast. Yes. So, yeah. Most, yeah. The highest accolade. What a year. The jewel in the crown. Yes. 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 <laughs> So for the summary of Women of the Free Trade, I, I couldn't do it any better than Frances Konkin herself. So the first little section here, I'm just going to read sort of the stage directions at the beginning of the play, and then just say a couple other things after that. So, so I'm taking this right from the play. Setting, 1800 and something something, a room in a fort on the banks of the Reddish River. We are somewhere. It's dark. There are three rocking chairs and not much else. There are walls, however, which are covered by portraits of men, famous men, infamous men, nobody men, somebody men, men without hats, men with brooms, men who sold the world, men who fell to earth, men of the fur trade, men of all kinds, men all over the place, just like in real life. There is also a floor, as is often the case. It's an odd sort of floor, and somewhere, someone is making some tea. And then three women enter, and they wear fur coats. And they sit in their rocking chairs, and they once again begin their lives. These three women are Marie Angelique, who is a Métis Taurus, who is determined to attract the attention of the hot nerd Louis Riel, who is, happens to be a Métis Libra, by sending him uh, boldly flirtatious letters. And then we have uh, Eugenia, who is an Ojibwe Sagittarius, who brings news of rebellion back to the fort after being away trading. And she actually sees through Louis Riel's sizzling reputation for the mediocre dude he seems to be. And Cecilia, the third woman, she's a British Virgo who is expecting a child and is anxiously awaiting her husband's return from an expedition. But she cannot resist pining over the heartthrob Thomas Scott, who is actually the one responding to Marie Angelique's letters to Riel. So through quick-witted dialogue, there's lots of talking over each other, modern pop culture references, and wonderfully insightful commentary on our province today and as it was formed over 150 years ago, Women of the Fur Trade gives the reader slash viewer a unique perspective on an important part of our history. Nice. Wow. Usually I start off by saying, how did we find it? But instead, this time I'm going to ask Colette specifically, since you selected the book for us today, what made you want to read this one for the podcast? So over the pandemic, I found that my reading habits changed quite a bit. I was not in the state of mind to read big, long novels with lots of plot and themes and devices that I needed to pay attention to. My attention span was a little shorter than usual. So when it came to getting back into reading, I thought, you know, a play is kind of good. It's very, you know, you just have to imagine the characters. You just read along the story. They're not very long. And uh, this one fell into my hands through a recommendation from a friend of mine. And I just uh, really enjoyed it. There was some laugh out loud moments in the play that I really enjoyed. And I'm really fascinated with reading about Indigenous culture and perspective to try to widen my own perspective. And so this one was kind of the right one for me at the time. So it really sort of rang some bells for me that uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I will say I really appreciated the shortness of the book because I, <laughs> again, scheduling is always nutty, but uh, it's amazing how dense the book is for being short. Not dense in a way that makes it hard to read, but like there's so much stuff in it, but it flows so nicely. How did you guys find it, Trevor and Toby? I used to like going to plays. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've been to a play since, you know, COVID. 
but uh, we we're talking about birthdays earlier and uh, uh, my mom's birthday is three days after Christmas. So a thing I would usually do is for her birthday, I would get tickets to a play. And this is the part I'm not so proud of is that I, because her birthday was December 28th, I would wait till Boxing Day to get the half price <laughs> sale on the tickets. But uh, sorry, mom, she might be listening. Uh, and uh, and that was always kind of like a nice thing to do. I thought I enjoyed, you know, the, the evening out going to a play with my mom. And then for a while we had tickets to Manitoba Theater Center. And then with our daughter, the, my wife and I, we would go to Manitoba Theater for young people. So yeah, we were big into plays and I miss it. I really miss the experience of going. So this is the first play I've seen slash read probably in a long time because just because of that. So it was, it was kind of nice imagining these characters in the scene and knowing that this was premiered here in Winnipeg and by an author that has uh, connections to Winnipeg. And I was, tr I tried to read it all in one sitting because I was trying to sort of replicate the experience. It didn't quite work out. I think I read it over two sittings and I kind of had the same uh, experience as you, Dennis, where I was like, oh yeah, it's not that long. Uh, you know, I'll have lots of time. And then it was like this past week. I was like, I better get started on reading this thing because we're going to be discussing it this week. So I did read through it and I agree. Yeah, the flow was great, despite the fact that it didn't sort of have a traditional structure of, I, I find with like acts and scenes, it sort of was written almost like chapters and there were multiple. So it'd be interesting you would think that because it's kind of broken up that it wouldn't keep the flow. But I, I was able to just kind of, um, I couldn't wait for the next little section to see what happened. I love this play. I, I thought it was super, super fun. I used to read a lot of plays. I have a, a degree in theater and that's something I didn't realize I missed doing reading plays. I think it's so interesting because when you write a play, you're so limited. You really only have the dialogue to work with. You can't really get into characters like inner thoughts and you have very limited control over the environment and the backstory. But I was just so impressed by how much she does with the dialogue here and also with the stage directions. She does so much with the stage directions. And I did have some teachers and directors that I've worked with in the past who were very anti-stage directions. You know, they encourage you to like cross them out when you're reading a play because ultimately like they're, they're suggestions, they're optional, but here they're so important. And I, yeah, I loved everything that was going on here. I don't read a lot of plays uh, as well as not watching a lot of plays. So I was kind of surprised by the openness of the stage directions and the descriptions like, you know, and the portraits come alive in the background. It's like, Oh, how are you? How are you doing that? That's not up to the playwright to <laughs> no, decide I know, that, right? But, but mm. it's like, here's the thing: you should put in the play. Essentially, is what she's saying, and it's like, oh, but then you really got to think about how that's set up. That's that's quite interesting. And some of the stage directions or some of the other elements to it, they suggest things, which for me as a reader was really great because I would, you know, like that moment where she uh, says. You know, Cecilia mentions uh, a baby and then she goes, oh, and she's visibly pregnant. I should have mentioned that. And in my mind, Cecilia was sitting there and all of a sudden, boop, she had a, <laughs> she had a belly. And I kind of want that to be how it played out. But, uh, you know. <laughs> I was really fascinated by the stage directions because like you, uh, Toby, I did do some theater classes. And the first thing they tell you is cross those all out as an actor. That's none of your business. But as a reader, it's all of my business. I was so curious as to how a playwright would, or how somebody who's mounting this play would do some of these things. Um, there was one stage direction which called for Eugenia pieces the heck out. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? How do you do that? Even as an actor, what? 
you know, is she going to put on a hippie, you know, with the beads and everything? I don't know. So the the stage directions really leave it up to the reader in this case to imagine the story more than you would see it in a play. So it, it has that added interest. And as a reader in general, like I'm not good at visualizing things, which I've, I've mentioned before on the podcast. I stick to the dialogue and the descriptions and things like that, but I have trouble picturing things in my head. And so with a play like this, where it's all dialogue, essentially, with a few directions here and there, you'd think I would just flow through it like that. But I actually stopped and had to imagine more because there wasn't as much background description. So I found myself trying to picture the characters more than I usually do, which uh, surprised me. But it just felt really important because the dialogue between, especially between the three lead characters is so interesting and so back and forth. And their voice matters so much in how you hear it in your head. I still struggled with visualizing them, but I spent more time trying than I usually do. I, I was getting a real um, sort of like uh, Douglas Adams vibe from the stage directions and that uh, I can have imagined reading it without them. Like some of them, like I was laughing out loud, like, you know, every once in a while, she'll write uh, beats like, like it's in terms of just like a, a moment to wait, B-E-A-T-S. And then so there's quite a long way. So it was beats. And then another beats, and the third one was spelled B E E T S, like the yeah. vegetable. And I just, I was like, I just like, I laughed, like that, that's absurd. And, <laughs> uh, uh, but it was funny. And then, uh, speaking of state directions, I like this one where it was Louis Riel and Thomas Scott get into a stick gunfight. <laughs> it starts out silly, but grows increasingly serious. There's lots of ad libbing. Uh, so I just imagine, like, I mean, that that gives a like a lot of uh, room. Kind of room is like, I mean, I'm under like ad libbing, like, what kind of stuff was happening during that stick fight, you know? And I mean, or it will be different every time a production is put on, isn't it? Like, whatever the ad libbing was in the warehouse will be different than Stratford and anywhere else the uh, <laughs> the play gets put on, which is kind of cool. Not being an actor, I imagine that seeing that in there is just like, ooh, I get to play and I get, <laughs> I get to show off if I'm yeah. good at something like this, you know. I guess ad-libbing doesn't mean improvising necessarily or does it like, I wonder like, would it, like say when you see that, would that mean that every night of the run, would they do something kind of different or would the ad-libbing be that they would work it out ahead of time and it would be ad-libbed or I guess it can mean whatever, it, whatever the director and the, or it, it can mean. Yeah, I don't I'm, know. I, don't I think, I think the actors themselves would probably fall into a bit of a routine mm. and sort of know when you say this, then we're going to go this way or whatever. Right. I don't think it would be necessarily scripted. What do you think, Toby? Yeah. yeah, I, I agree. I think there would probably be some understanding of what was going to happen there mm. um, that they would do every performance. Oh, yeah. But I definitely looked up pictures of this play when it was put on at Manitoba Theatre Centre to better visualize at least sort of one director's vision for it. I don't know if anyone else did, but the three women are in the center and behind them is the portraits of the men that are kind of like on screens um, and they're black mm -hmm. and white. So I guess when I first started reading it, I pictured those portraits as paintings. But if they're to animate, that wouldn't work. And then Riel and Thomas Scott are sort of far stage right and stage left. And that's where they play out their scenes. And that helped me visualize when the stage directions would say something like, you know, she takes the portrait off the wall and the portrait screams. And I'm like, but how? <laughs> yeah. See, that makes a lot more sense than what I was thinking. Because yeah. I was imagining a bunch of people behind there kind of <laughs> sitting in the spot. And that's totally impractical. So the screens makes much more sense. <laughs> Yeah, it can just be a bunch of iPads. Dang it! Why did they? <laughs> think of that? Yeah, See, I could when never, they, I could never put and on when one that of stage these. direction was they come alive. It could just be like frozen images of these men that then they 
they have. I'll, I guess I mean I haven't I didn't see the production, but I'm, would it be people that were contemporary? Like so there well, would, there was yeah, there was like Keanu Reeves was on there um, among yeah. others. I, I yeah. love that mention too. All of her pop culture references are so on point. So like, good. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. I liked how um, having pop culture references with a historical sort of set in time mm-hmm. and that interplay sort of gives you a sense of timelessness about the play mm-hmm. that um, we're outside of time. And so we're kind of watching something that's happening, but it could be now or it could be then. So it sort of blurs the line of reality, I think. And I thought that was really interesting. There, there was a lot of... I don't want to say fourth wall breaking because they didn't like talk directly to the audience. Well, kind of though. In a play, like when they're doing the intro, they are talking to the audience. It's meta. Is yeah, what it's I very, very noted. meta. Yeah. Like, like I love the spot right near the beginning where they're pouring tea and everyone gets some tea and Eugenia is like turning her cup upside yeah, down. There's, there's no, no tea. Yeah. Hey, is there supposed to end? And then they just cut her off and yeah. they leave right. it there. And then at the end they say, there's no tea. There was yeah. never any tea. Yeah. The tea is a lie, yeah. which is a reference to a video game Portal. Oh, is it? The cake is a lie oh. was a, a thing from Portal and it was a big meme at the time. It took me a while to figure out what it meant. I actually played the game. <laughs> it was it was a good game. Yeah, and that's the other thing. There are so many pop culture references, but they are so quick and subtle that I'm sure I missed half of them. But the ones that I recognize, like the tea is a lie, as the cake is a lie, there were, you know, the references to Louis Riel when he started getting self-aggrandizing and a little delusional. He referred to himself as the one. And mm-hmm. since we've already mentioned Keanu, it's like, okay, it's, it's a like, Matrix yeah, reference. It's a matrix, but it's totally. super quick, right? Super quick, easy to miss, even if you're familiar with it. And if you're not familiar with it, it'll just fly by. Mm. But, or it reaches the younger audience as well. So mm-hmm. there's those me in the older yeah. <laughs> age of the audience. I will catch them, but not all of them. But uh, yeah, I think it really bridges the gap of generations to be able to enjoy the play. What it reminds me a lot of is uh, the TV series Arrested Development. You're familiar with that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one where the, the jokes are so dense that you can watch that series like five times and you will still spot new jokes the fifth time through because they just, they're rapid fire and they don't stop to laugh. And this play felt very much like that. There were, there were jokes and they sometimes came immediately on the heels of the previous one. And sometimes on top of uh, every episode, yeah. yeah. Well, and when they're talking intertwined, like when they were doing their letters, uh, or when they're just talking over each other, it would be very easy viewing the play live to miss two thirds of it. Mm. Uh, so you go back and the next time you listen to a little, a little differently and you'll catch different things. I feel like this is a very rereadable, rewatchable kind of thing because of that. I feel like you could just take a single page of it and just try to find all the references within that page. And, and yeah, I mean, stuff. I, I started writing them down and mm-hmm. I just stopped. I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, America's next top model, Tyra yeah. Banks, the killers, angels in America, Instagram, um, Andy Warhol, Truman yeah. Capote, yeah, Braveheart, Cats. <laughs> Surrey of their own. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, no, the it's idea fun. of like faking being Metis for book deals. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> Joseph Boyd and Byrne. Yeah. And, and others. Yeah. And others. Yeah. <laughs> amongst others. Yeah. And just her, her phrasing and uh, the lines, like one of my favorites was stop bitching and start migit witching. Oh, that <laughs> was the laugh out loud moment oh, for me. Geez. Quit your bitching, start yeah. me gwitching. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Or 
the interplay between the cultures of the three women where they just go back and forth with uh, little things. And again, little throwaways like uh, when I think Eugenia said Migwitch and uh, Cecilia was like, oh, happy Maywitch to you too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they just move on. Just yeah. Quickly move on. And just some goofy slapstick too, like the the stage directions of when the characters are are crossing themselves, and then the third yeah. one is just all like all just over. It's just like <laughs> yeah, you know, doing it all wrong. It's, it's like Tom Hanks from A League of Their Own. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah I can that. I know exactly what that's about. Sending signals. Yeah, yeah. And considering the way the uh, characters are often talking either over each other or interspersed with each other. That's an easy way sometimes to kind of lose where you are when you're reading it. Like, cause at, at a certain point I stop reading the name for each line and I just start reading the lines. But the characters are all clearly defined enough that you can, you can understand which one is which just from the wording and the tone and, and uh, the context. It's, uh, really well written that way. I especially like writing letters to the Prime Minister and Louis Riel yeah. and someone Johnny else. McDonald. Oh. I just loved all of Eugenia's little, you know, yeah. I hate you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the A stands for asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's right in the midst of a love letter. So yeah. it's like a love letter. Yeah, Cecilia Wright to her husband. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, yeah. That was really clever how that was all intertwined. And then, you know, the like you, you referenced the, the mail being delivered like instantaneously by flinging it in the air. and Right. And at some point she says Canada Post comes to get the letters, mm. but at the very end it's FedEx. Mm. So I don't know what to read into that, but it was like, hmm, I wonder why FedEx is now taking the letters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another little subtle so, comment. Maybe, the stage yeah. directions do speak highly of Canada Post, though. It's yeah. Like, yeah. They're it's, delivered it's, it's, efficiently. It's, 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 and, yeah. yeah. But also, given the tone of the rest of the writing, you could take that sarcastically, yeah, true, too. Yeah, very true. So, yeah. I'm just a big Canada Post fan. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should send them a letter to tell them. <laughs> so. Maybe I will. And it will be delivered fast and efficiently. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you were born 100 years too late. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess the interplay of the three women is really the heart and soul of the play itself. Mm -hmm. um, seeing, you know, Cecilia has a cough, so she's the the white colonizer character, and no one ever says in the end whether she's dying of this this illness that she has, but it just um, subtly shows that there's uh, something unwell with. She kind of mentions at one point, though, like when she's writing a letter back to her family, right? Something about, you know, I won't be here that long or I forget the exact wording. Right. She kind of hints at it. But yeah, it's very subtle. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I feel like she's coughing and there's a comment made about how it's not relevant to the plot. Yeah. 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 That's very early on. It's again, one of those hilarious Where stage directions. Meta, meta moments. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a stage direction. I think oh, no, someone's... You're yeah, right. Says yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. And that's another wink at the audience. Um the structure of this is very surrealist, which is interesting. Like that can take you out of a story, but I felt like it just drew me into it this time. I mean, I'm a fan of surrealist stuff like Douglas Adams and, you know, Monty Python and things like that. So that fits in with my sense of humor and the things I appreciate anyway. But she just did a really good job of that, playing with the structure of the play and with audience expectations. I don't know how common that is in plays because I don't mm -hmm. see a lot of plays, but... Yeah, I mean, in the plays I've read, these are for sure the most fun stage directions I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, most of the other plays I read were Shakespeare, you know, for school, and those were not fun at no. all. Well, there's that wise. good one where the person leaves and then is pursued by a bear. Right. That famous stage direction. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a winter's tale. Yeah. Uh, I did not read that oh, one. I don't okay. remember that either. <laughs> 
I want to be the bear in that production. <laughs> yeah, you just sort of assume that they get killed by the bear, but yeah, someone just walks off at the stage and then it says you know, they're pursued by a bear. <laughs> or a guy in a bear costume. <laughs> oh, maybe, it could be, it could be. Yeah. Or want... a big burly man. <laughs> oh, who likes uh, Broadway show tunes. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like that one little sort of section of the zinger where the, all the, the the characters are kind of throwing out the changing acceptable terminology. You know, it goes from yeah. Indians to indigenous to Native Americans. No, it ends with, sorry, it goes from Indians to indigenous, but on the way, Native Americans, Aboriginals, First Nations, kind of in this really interesting weave. And I just like, oh man, she nailed it. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I, I just one of the more little things I liked about it. It was just quick and it was there and it was gone on to the next thing. It was interesting, too. She touched on racism several times, and it's kind of at the heart of, like, a lot of the story. Like, it's like, oh, they're going to come and kill us. Well, not me. I'm white, you know. Mm. (laughs) But at the same time, the the women are kind of struggling with, they each have different interests in the outcome of all of this stuff, but they're friends, and they don't want each other to come to harm. But they all want to be safe, too. And that's kind of like the essential moral struggle of the mm-hmm. of the play. Like, how do you balance that? And they maintain their friendship, as far as we can tell, all the way through the story. But it, I felt like it dealt compassionately with the struggle that we have when we're trying to figure out how to deal with racism in our institutions and in our country, while also being afraid of losing our comfort and safety. Again, this happens very quickly through the story, so it doesn't really dwell on it, but it touches on it in a way I found very, like it connected with me. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too how at the beginning of the play, Eugenia, she seemed to be able to be free to come and go as she wanted and the uh, trading and then coming back and bringing news. But then there was a part where even she couldn't leave the room. No one could leave the room. And it was just like, what, what was the play trying to say there? Like, is it they're just so marginalized that... They can't even participate. They're kind of sidelined. I wasn't sure if you had anyone had thoughts on that. There's a quote where they say, the woods are on fire, the sky burns, we are beyond, and I am the one. So that's right at the end. But the only kind of freedom that counts is the kind you make for yourself. So I think the whole point of the play is we need to find our own way out of um, the racism that's in society now and the division, because they do talk about the division in society as well. And I think I think that was really the heart of the play was the, the women feel trapped. And at the beginning, they're saying, well, it's only the men. We can only quote men. We're not allowed to quote women. Mm-hmm. I think um, Francis put the spotlight on the women to say, if our people are sleeping for 100 years and the artists will find our way out, then the artists will help us find our way out of some of the problems that are facing our society. At least that's what I took from it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that line, that that quote from Louis Rail about, you know, we will sleep for 100 years. And then mm-hmm. the artist that I think appeared a couple of times in the play, maybe. So it really at the beginning, towards the beginning and then towards the end, too, it really had a little extra meaning towards the end, for sure. I've been reflecting lately on the way we put value on different jobs, which I think is a lot of uh, something that's been in the cultural conversation, especially over the pandemic, as people are struggling economically. And one of the things that occurs to me is like we have a lot of jobs that help us survive we count on farmers uh, to provide us food we count on infrastructure and like the people who build it and things like that but all of that just helps us live longer and be around but in order to be happy 
uh, like to find reason to move on. We need art of different kinds. Like we need stories, we need music, we need visual art, we need entertainment, TV and plays and movies and things like that. I've come to believe that artists are the most important job that we have in society because they give us more than the physical that we have to just get by on. And uh, so I like that line. I was, artists will wake us up. Artists will bring us to the future. And it's like, yeah, you know, I think that's very accurate. Yeah, I think artists tap into sort of the the self-conscious of society, you know, they're the ones who are sort of in tune with the things that upset them and upset society. And so they have a conversation with things that we may not think about on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So I really look towards artists to learn more about myself, but also artists during the pandemic were the ones who couldn't work. There was no work for people who played in bars or, you know, nobody Mm -hmm. was going to, so I think now is the time to actually listen to them. Like, I feel like it's just so prophetic to put that particular line of Lurielle's in this play because it, it is a reminder. It was over a hundred years ago. And so maybe the artists are waking up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's exactly what, you know, this play is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. We could probably go on for quite a bit longer <laughs> if we wanted to. I think I've done most of my notes. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone have any, like, final comments you want to make before we move on to the next section? I just wanted to point out one little footnote, which I thought was an interesting connection to Winnipeg Public Library, was in the cast and crew on the front page, you'll, you'll notice that the stage manager was Margaret Brooke. Now, some of you may remember oh, yeah. Margaret Brooke as being a longtime employee of Winnipeg Public Library mm-hmm. for quite a while at the Cornish Library. Yeah, hi, Margaret. Yeah, and she also, before she started with library, she worked, I think, for Parks as a gardener. Yes, that's And right. was responsible for the uh, the community garden, or, or not responsible, at least, but definitely involved in the Absolutely. community garden behind Cornish. And and I know she was also in the theater world. So here she is here now. I think she's now uh, retired. Yes, she has. And, uh, but she is awesome and uh, multi-talented. And here she is appearing on uh, the crew of the very first production of Women of the Fur Trade. Margaret Brooke. Cool. Awesome. Any I think I'm going to buy tickets for the uh, for her play, that, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, Space Girl, for next month if anyone wants to join me. <laughs> Little uh, podcast outing. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My last thought about the play is the thing that I took of, away was that this play is really a rallying cry to send help, like at the very end, which I thought was very touching. Uh, they all decide to write the prime minister. And of course, they're all in their own point of view writing to him. But in the end, they're asking for help. And my final comment is, uh, if you're like me and don't normally read plays, because why would you read a play? That's dumb. Um <laughs> This one was really funny and it didn't take long and it was really insightful, but it didn't hit you over the head with anything. You can read it at any level you want and it's enjoyable. So yeah, read this one and then go see it if you can, because it seems like it would be really fun to watch. So with that, uh, let's move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Who's got a good recommendation? Well, I just started reading Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, which is, you know, it's good, but it's a heartbreaking kind of good. You know, mm. it's it's a tough read. It's uh, pretty gritty, but um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it and I'm about halfway through so far. So I would definitely recommend that one. Well, when I was reading this play, uh, I was struck with the similarities of taking something, historical figures and mixing it all up with modern pop culture uh, references. So I kept coming back to 
Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, mm-hmm. uh, a Broadway play from about six or seven years ago now about the uh, life of Alexander Hamilton, the uh, first treasurer of the uh, United States. But it's done completely in uh, music, different styles. It was very hard to get a ticket to it when it first opened for a number of years. I don't know with COVID what happened, but my only Hamilton anecdote is I'm in a choir and this, there's a guy that's also in the choir and he was always going off like on uh, business trips and to New York and places. And he, he, when rehearsal was like, yeah, I went to see Hamilton. And I was just like, like what, what? Like, like I just, like I was like hyperventilating and he's like, I laughed at the intermission. He was, he was like, <laughs> he's then he turned to me. It's like, it's hip hop. Uh, and, he, and I'm like, what? Like, and then he's like, I should have gone to see Kinky Boots. <laughs> and so I was like, come on. So anyway, I would not have left the intuition. Anyway, Hamilton. I was kind of on the same wavelength as you, Trevor. Um, so I have a recommendation by Kate Beaton, who is a Canadian cartoonist. And she recently just published a graphic novel called Ducks, um, which is about some time she spent working in the oil sands in Alberta and is excellent. It's currently being championed by Jeopardy wunderkind Matea Roach on Canada Reads. Mm. But I'm recommending an earlier work by Kate Beaton called Hark a Vagrant. Um, which is funny historical and literary comics. Kate Beaton does this thing just like Frances Concan, where she takes historical figures and makes them speak like they belong in the 20th, 21st century and adds in pop culture. And I, I don't know why, but this kind of humor is just like, is what does it for me. So, uh, yeah, that's, um, Hark a Vagrant by Kate Beaton. I love that book. And one that's of the so things good. she does too is she'll take book covers without uh, ever reading the book and then she does a little cartoon based mm. on what she thinks the book is about. No. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, you're right. There's lots of literary characters. I think Louis Riel appears mm-hmm. once or twice. Uh, characters from The Great Gatsby. Fun. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. That I, I historical don't. anachronism yeah. stuff. I just, yeah. I just love. Yeah. Bend the rules. Bend the rules. Yeah. <laughs> So I've mentioned I rarely read or attend plays, so I don't have a lot to draw on. But I'm going to suggest that if you enjoyed Women of the Fur Trade, you might also enjoy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern mm-hmm. Are Dead by Tom Stoppard. Classic. It's been described as an absurdist existential tragicomedy. It follows two minor characters from Hamlet, the titular characters Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and it mostly takes place in between scenes from Hamlet. So it helps to have recently read or watched Hamlet to get the full impact, kind of like it helps to be a little familiar with the history of Louis Riel to get the full impact of Women of the Fur Trade. We read it in school, and we found out a school nearby us, they also read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but had not read Hamlet, so the students had no idea what was going on. <laughs> oh, that is so weird. I know, right? You really should read Hamlet first or watch it. Anyways, I read it in high school, so it's been a while, but I remember it being very funny, and hopefully it still stands up. Just like, I think, last night or the night before, my husband and I are watching WandaVision, and we haven't seen The Avengers, and so we're kind of lost. And I was like, I think it, this is like watching Rosencrantz and Guildenstern without having seen Hamlet. <laughs> you, did you really just I, make I that I really reference? just made oh, that wow. reference. That's yeah. serendipity yeah. right there. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a theater nerd, um, and I do love that play, but yeah, I did just make that reference. So. But I think you, you can enjoy WandaVision without seeing the Avengers, and you can enjoy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern without knowing Hamlet, but it just, it helps, you know, it really helps. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it, it provides a lot of context for something that is otherwise kind of just weird and disconnected. Yeah. There were back in the day when you could just go see a movie and you could watch it for a couple hours, you could enjoy it and go home. But like with Marvel movies now, I feel oh. like I have to see either every one of them so I can understand every what other one of them. It's like a giant uh, quilt 
Hmm. It's a giant world. Giant world. Yeah. I, I read, I've read some Terry Pratchett uh, novels, which are hilarious and fun. And he's got like an interconnected world with a lot of interconnected characters. Someone online made a chart showing like, if you want to get into his work, if you want to try this series, you start here and it gives you whole like diagrams of flow charts that it goes through. And I feel like Marvel movies need that too. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I want to see a Thor movie because, you know, Chris Hemsworth. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you want sure, to watch yeah. it? No other reason. But like, which <laughs> movies do I have to watch to understand what's happening in the latest one? Mm. You know, because some of them you don't. You don't have to watch Ant-Man if you want to watch Thor, as far as I know. I could be wrong. I'm out of date. I haven't watched the last couple of years worth of them. It gets complicated. This is why I don't watch any <laughs> superhero <laughs> movies because I'm lost. Yeah, I, but then I, you'll miss a bunch of pop culture references that yeah. may show up in a play like this mm -hmm. one in the future. Right. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists chat about words that caught our imagination recently. <laughs> Anyone got a good word? Well, I have one that's not related to the play in any way. <laughs> that's fine. We've been seeing a lot of Ukrainian people coming to the library recently, and some of them, their English is, you know, good, but not great. So I've been trying to learn a tiny bit of Ukrainian just to, you know, get by with a please and a thank you or a good day. But um, yeah, in my little Ukrainian language travels, the word for brother in Ukrainian is brat. Brat. So if you ever want to call your brother a brat, you can do it in Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs> That is interesting and useful. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, as much as I enjoyed reading this play, I recognize that a play is more than just the words. It's sort of the, uh, the, the visuals, it's the costumes, it's the staging, it's the, it's the sounds. So my nerd word this uh, month is not a word, it's a nerd sound. And the mm. sound is dun dun dun. <laughs> we all know that sound. Ever thought about where it came from or what it was about? Uh, apparently, if you Google it, nobody knows. Uh. Nobody knows. Nobody knows where it came from. Although it's not Bugs Bunny cartoons. Well, I think it predates Bugs Bunny. It even probably predates uh, radio. It was in like the uh, the golden age of radio dramas. It was used a, a, a lot is to emphasize like a you know a, a plot twist or or something kind of revealed. Apparently, uh, I saw this movie when I was a kid. I hated it. Fantasia. There's apparently like a bunch of dinosaurs fighting and they use uh, Stravinsky's music and there's a big dun 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 at mm. the end. But the one dun 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 that you may uh, hear more frequently was actually recorded in the uh, 1980s by this uh, composer. <laughs> I guess he was a composer. Dick Walter. He was, he was hired by a KPM in Britain to record four vinyl albums of musical sound effects called The Editor's Companion. He got an orchestra of 35 to 40 people, and he recorded hundreds of tracks over 18 months. And uh, you'll find that if you uh, listen to a four-second, three-beat recording uh, track called Shock Horror A, it will be the one dun, 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 <laughs> that, uh, that you, that, that's used most often. So actually, it only that one dates back to the 1980s, oh, wow. which is kind of weird. So there it is. That's Next time you hear that. Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> It's a classic. It's true. Everybody yes. knows the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So my word is not at all related to the book um, as well. 
I recently got my hands on this book. It's called Word Perfect, Etymological Entertainment Every Day. Um, I actually talked about this book um, and how I had it on hold when we recorded the Henrietta Lacks episode. Whoa. So a mm. long time like ago. Over a year it ago. Just, yeah, it just came in. And it is a book that is literally a word for every day. And it's delightful. Um, and so I thought I would just read the entry for today, February 13th, um, where the word is tartle. So it says, English is full of linguistic gaps. What do we call the email you leave until later because you need to give it a considered response and then forget about it altogether? <laughs> what about the compulsion to stare at the person you're overtaking in your car? What do you call the sudden grip of fear that the person trending on Twitter has died? Happily, some of the apparent holes in today's language can in fact be filled by a good rifle through a dictionary from the past. The 17th century Scots word tartle is one of those. It is defined in the dictionary of the Scots language as to hesitate, to be uncertain, as in recognizing a person or object. In other words, tartling involves the embarrassed and extended pause you make when forced to introduce to a friend someone whose name you have completely forgotten. <laughs> the flow of ums, erms, and ahs that duly follow are also known as tartles. If you're looking for something more expressive, you might look to Australian slang, where the term for someone who is very familiar, but whose name escapes you, is apparently known as shaggledick. <laughs> History hasn't yet recorded why. So, a really fun book for anyone just wanting to learn more about words. And that's by Susie Dent. I don't think I, I mentioned the author. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Maybe that's why it took you so long to get it, because someone was actually reading a word a day and Maybe. just kept renewing it yeah. and not bringing it back. Yeah. My word for this month is panic. It's usually defined as sudden uncontrollable fear or anxiety, often causing wildly unthinking behavior. Now, according to Merriam-Webster, panic comes to us from the French panique, which in turn derives from Greek panikos, meaning literally of pan. Pan is the pipe-playing, nymph-chasing Greek god of fertility, pastors, flocks, and shepherds. He also has a rather dark side. His shout is said to have instilled fear in the giants fighting the gods. And the Greeks believed him responsible for causing the Persians to flee in terror at the Battle of Marathon. Panic entered our language first as an adjective, suggesting the mental or emotional state that Pan was said to induce. And the adjective first appeared in print at the beginning of the 17th century, and the noun followed about a century later. So the reason it came to mind is uh, I play a video game called Rocket League, which is basically soccer, but the players drive rocket-powered cars. Mm -hmm. So I often watch the Rocket League Championship Series tournaments, and the commentators will often talk about players panicking uh, as, you know, you're playing and the offense is coming in and you start to think, oh, they're going to score on me, I got to rush, and uh, then you start playing a little recklessly because you're panicking. And so, yeah, panic. Hmm. Which we're not doing right now. <laughs> I never panic. <laughs> I don't panic every morning when I wake up. <laughs> so unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Tatooine by Jean-Christophe Riel. It's a long way from a basement apartment in a Montreal suburb to a new life on a fictional planet, but that's the destination our unnamed narrator has set his sights on, bringing readers with him on an offbeat and often hilarious journey. Along the way, he writes poems, buys groceries at the dollar store, and earns minimum wage at a dead-end supermarket job. In between treatments for his cystic fibrosis and the constant drip, drip, drip of disappointment, he dreams of a new life on Tatooine, where he'll play Super Mario Brothers and make sand angels all day. <laughs> but in the meantime, he'll have to make do with daydreams of a better life. 
Tatooine is also the next one e-read Canada selection, so it won't just be our little virtual book club reading it. Join in before everyone else does. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was great. It was fun.